morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Boy, you know, I got up this morning, I looked in the closet, I even put on my Bronco suit. I still get no respect. Game's at 2 o'clock, right? Before we dig into the sermon this morning to show you I'm in the spirit of the Broncos tailgate immediately following the service, I thought I'd share with you my game plan through the end of Acts and indeed through the end of the year. It's our playbook for concluding our series on the book of Acts. Yes, it's exciting, I know. John Burns, our church webmaster, among other things, is going into shock right now. Can we get some water? I never share with John this much information this early, right, John? I still might show up, John, you know, with last-minute Sunday morning edit videos for you, okay? And you know if I didn't do that, you know, you'd miss it, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, he's not saying. Folks, John will get after me after, uh, you know, the service for doing this, but I really don't care. <laughs> no, wait, I don't have it out yet, right? Would you please join me in expressing our appreciation for John and his entire crew? I, you know, and their families, and their families who give them up every week each morning. Guys, you have no idea how much you enhance our worship experience with God each and every week. Thank you so much for always washing our feet. You see our playbook for the rest of 2008, almost at least, on the screen. Today we'll begin a series of sermons on something I'm calling Finishing Well, sort of a five-piece mini-sermon series to conclude our massive series on the book of Acts. I, I was reading through the end of Acts again this week, and it struck me, it overwhelmed me, in fact, with tears, just how well Paul finishes his life and ministry. And I thought, wow, there is a lot here that we can learn about how to finish our lives and ministry well, too. So, from now on through the end of Acts, we'll be asking this question and answering it a bit differently each week. How do we finish well? How do we finish well, even as we look to Paul's example of finishing well in these last chapters in Acts? You also see, let me take a moment, please, to talk about Ray Vanderlaan coming here on November 9. I haven't said much about Ray yet. Let me pause here to say this about that. No teacher or friend or mentor in my life has blessed me more, inspired me more in my Christian life and witness than this man. I have known Ray and worked closely with Ray now for 11 years ago, 11 years ago, God, through this man, kindled in me a fire and passion for God and His Word that I can't even put into words. He is, in my opinion, one of the greatest Bible teachers of our generation at least. And he's a dear friend. Folks, you do not want to miss this. He's coming here because I've been telling him about you. And he wants to meet you and share with you. His speaking schedule around the world is, oh my goodness, booked years in advance. We get a real gift in getting him this fall. We're already getting calls literally from coast to coast asking about tickets. Focus on the family is sure to send a contingent north from the springs. 
Ray partners with Focus in publishing his Faith Lesson series. Many of you I know have seen them and been blessed by them. His seminar in November called Walk as Jesus Walked begins Friday night, November 7, continues all day, uh, November 8 on Saturday. And then as you've heard, Ray will share this, will share with us on Sunday morning, November 9. Couldn't be more excited that he's coming. And I guess all I can say to you is you don't want to miss it. Get your tickets now. Don't wait. You can buy them at the church office. You can buy them online at least very soon. My understanding is 25 bucks for Friday night and Saturday sessions is an unbelievable steal. Come and hear the one, and then I'll move on. Come and hear the one that his Jewish friends call the lion. And let me tell you, you don't earn lightly from Jews in particular the title lion. Whatever you got going that week and change it, your sons and daughters can get married a different Saturday. All right, you get the picture. I... I just want so badly for you to be blessed by experiencing God's Word through this man. You will not be disappointed. Please, don't disappoint yourself. Make your plans to join us that weekend. All right. Your Bibles are open to Acts 24. You recall, many of you, I hope, Paul has been taken to Caesarea, some 65 miles north and west of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean Sea coast. And Paul's accusers now have finally arrived at Caesarea as well, and the trial before Felix, the Roman governor, begins. I'll begin reading at Acts 24, verse 1. Five days later, when the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea, whoa, the high priest went to Caesarea. This is huge. Caesarea is a mixed city of Jew and Gentile. For him even to go into that city makes him unclean. He'll have to spend a week becoming clean before he can participate in temple exercises again. This is a big deal. The high priest himself comes. Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. Uh Uh-oh, they've got the hired gun. As a past lawyer, I can say that. They bring their lawyer. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, here you see again some of the roots of American jurisprudence, the right to face your accusers, deeply embedded in Roman law. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. The case can be summarized in one, or at least how Tertullus begins, can be summarized in one Yiddish word. It's shtick. Tertullus begins with his shtick. It's a good hangman word, too. S-H-T-I-C-K. They'll never get it. Try it out. Shtick. So here's Tertullus and his shtick to Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Shtick. And then I wonder if Felix had a look on his face like, because look at what Tertullus said. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. It's an oxymoron. Brief lawyer. Brief preacher. I know. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. Wow. 
By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our followers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Circle that verse if you write in your Bibles or if you don't. Maybe you'd like to begin now by circling it. We'll come back to it later. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now that's a mouthful. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. (laughs) You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. So how do we, like Paul, finish well? First, let me clarify a bit about this phrase, this business of finishing well. Maybe, maybe when you first heard the phrase or when we first hear the phrase finishing well, we think of people who are older, right? Or people who, who somehow know that the end of their life is getting nearer, whether because of age or, or maybe even sickness or disease. Makes sense to most of us, maybe, me included. Well, Encourage those folks to finish well, because they're finishing, and we want them to finish well. But I've got something much broader in mind. When I chose Finishing Well as a series title, I had everyone here 
in mind, regardless of age or wealth or experience or maturity in the faith or whatever. And that's because no matter who you are, no matter what your age, no matter if we're 8 or 88 years old, whether we're all in perfect health or, or, or whether our health is waning, we need to be encouraged to finish well today. Whatever time we have left, whether it's a day or a century, we need to be challenged and encouraged to finish well. This question is for all of us. How do we finish well? And you know, I look on the side and see the high school students and other kids around the, the room. Guys, this question is for you too. And I know, it wasn't too long ago that I was a teen. I can barely remember it, okay? And you may think, well, wait a minute, I'm not even thinking about finishing well. After all, I'm young. You know, your whole life is ahead of you. Finishing well, you might think, I'm just getting started. Let me tell you guys, you ask anybody in this room. For me, it began about the age 40. You ask anybody in this room, 40, 50, 60 years older, you ask them how quickly the time went in their life. You ask them. Am I right? Nine, nine out of ten of you at least. How fast did the time go since you were a teen, those of you who are older? Did you hear them snapping? And someone told me that when I was sitting in that chair your age. And I went, 40? <laughs> and literally, I closed my eyes one night and I woke up and here I stand at 42. It goes like that. And whether you're aware of it or not, You are beginning today finishing your life. The Bible gives us a picture. It gives us a picture that we're like mist that evaporates quickly in the morning sun. Now that picture might primarily be directed at how great and eternal and sovereign God is compared to us. Okay. But there's also something there, isn't there, about the urgency to our lives. We're not here very long. No matter how long we live, it goes like that. And so as a mist soon to evaporate, we need to indeed ask urgently the question, how do we finish well before God takes us home? I told you the verse I'd like to focus on this morning. It's our first answer of how do we finish well. Perhaps if we ask Paul here, Paul, how are you finishing well? Paul might answer as he does in Acts 24:16. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Oh, that's good advice, Paul. Excellent example for us to follow. You know, Paul talks about the conscience a lot. The word appears 34 times in the Bible. 28 of those times in the New Testament... And 20 of those times from Paul. Paul in particular, it seems, recognizes the importance of conscience. What does Paul mean when he talks about striving to keep his conscience clear? A great theologian once got appointed to be a conscience for someone else. Can you imagine that job? Your job is to be his or her or their 
conscience. Write a jo- quite a job, right? Ought to pay well, don't you think? Parents are saying, yeah, tell me about it. I know what that job's like. Well, this theologian, this theologian was appointed to be Pinocchio's conscience. And as Jiminy Cricket was wont to do, he just had to sing about it. That's what crickets do. They chirp. And you just know, right, I'm going to play that song. So let's listen. Give yourself a cross-examination. Are you just about to make a big mistake? Well, here's a way to save the situation. So learn it now, for heaven's sake, give your better self a break. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Not just a little squeak, pucker up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell, Jiminy Cricket. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. Here it comes. And always let let your conscience be your guide. Okay. There's a long way to get to that line, I know. Now, many have correctly, in my opinion, poked holes in Jiminy Cricket theology. Always let your conscience be your guide is a dangerous thing if what we mean by that is we get to decide what's right or wrong. If God's not part of who our conscience is and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's a dangerous guide. Always let your conscience be your guide if it means it's somehow up to us rather than up to God. But my friends, as people indwelt with God's living prison, uh, God's living presence Himself, sometimes in our reluctance to talk about conscience, do we go too far the other way? Do we each time we feel a twinge or a whisper of conscience react by saying, "What? Whoa! That feels like guilt," and I'm not supposed to feel guilty. I'm saved by grace and grace alone. I'm made in God's image. What's making me feel guilty? Kill it. Well, what if, like Paul, there's also a godly use of conscience? What if God decides to whisper the way to us through our conscience? See, ultimately, here's why, in my opinion, we get nervous about conscience. We don't very much like to recognize the relationship between our conduct and the afterlife. See, and as soon as I say that, I feel immediately the warning flares going off in the room. Relationship between conduct and afterlife? That's works-based righteousness. Kill it! Yes! I know we are saved by grace and not by works, lest anyone should boast. Amen! But my friends, our conduct is nevertheless crucial to our lives and witness as followers of Christ. It is no coincidence that a few verses after Paul speaks of keeping a clear conscience, he teaches Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Did you catch it? 
Righteousness, self-control, and judgment are conduct matters. And what does Felix do? He freaks out. He gets scared and he backs away. See, finishing well means facing our conscience when it's being used by God to try to convict us toward godly living and striving to keep it clear before God and man. Why? Because our conduct matters. So how do we finish well? By striving to remember our conduct matters. Now how about Paul's statement that he strives to keep his conscience clear before God and man? The last two verses of that statement make any of your eyebrows raise a bit. Keep our conscience clear before God and man. When I first read Paul's statement, I was good with the before God part. That didn't surprise me. Paul's talking about his relationship with God. Well, what about that second part? Keeping our conscience clear before man. What's that all about? Well, once upon a time, once upon a time, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee, stood up and asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember? And the answer in Luke 10 is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, finish it, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you catch that? Eternal life itself goes hand in glove with loving God and, 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 and loving your neighbor who Jesus then goes on to define as even our enemies. Wow! This is radical stuff! The question of eternal life is wrapped up in loving God and neighbors. Jesus said so. Look it up. Luke 10. And Paul says that he strives to keep his conscience clear, his conduct matters, before God and man. Well, what a coincidence. Do you suppose that's related? Of course it is. You know this, but let me repeat what you already know. I'm here to tell you today that being in Christ involves not only our relationship with God, but also with people. And Oh, we say that a lot, but we so miss that a lot in our living, at least I do. We're not only called to work on our loving relationship with God, but we're also called to work on our loving relationship with people. And I'll even go further. When Jesus makes the loving neighbor command like the loving God command, oh my goodness, Jesus says the loving neighbor command is like the love God command. He's telling us that we are to love God first and foremost by loving our neighbor. In other words, we serve a God that says, when you love on people in my name, you're loving on me. God accepts loving others in Jesus' name as we're loving Him. He accepts loving others into the kingdom of heaven as loving God. This is a huge biblical theme, my friends. Now look at Paul here. How is Paul keeping his conscience clear before God and man? How is he loving God by loving others? In short, one angle at least into what Paul says and how he says it, he is relentlessly still reaching out to his enemies. Relentlessly. When he stands up to defend himself, look what he does. He bends over backwards yet again, 
to identify himself closely with those Jews prosecuting him. Sure, his first response is, hey, these charges are false and can't be proved. He's basically done with his defense after verse verse 13. They can't prove any of it, he says to Felix. And he's right. He wins. But what happens beginning in verse 14, here's where the lawyer in me, or the Charlie Brown in me, I guess, goes, Ah! Paul starts doing something you really don't want to do in court. He starts volunteering information and admitting things. The lawyer in me wants to tell Paul, I mean, I'm tracking with him, and Tertullus, I'm thinking he can't prove this. Paul gets up, you guys can't prove any of this. So as as Paul's lawyer, I'd be like, okay, Paul, sit down now. And I'd be shuffling my papers, and then all of a sudden Paul goes, however, that's a nice, your honor, um, I'd like to request a recess so I can pound some sense into my client. Fortunately, I wasn't counsel for Paul there that day because he keeps on going. And look at what he emphasizes. He doesn't emphasize that he's a Roman citizen. He doesn't say that anywhere. He emphasizes that he's a Jew, a Christian Jew following the way. And he admits he agrees with Torah and the prophets. Why would he do that? I think he's still reaching out to this Jewish Jewish contingent from Jerusalem who wants him dead. Straining toward them, identifying with them. God of our fathers, he says. I came with gifts for my people, he says. He's pleading with them again to accept the resurrection of the dead as fact. Just like the prophet Daniel said in Daniel 12, verse 2. The resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. He even couches it in terms of Scripture they've accepted. Paul tells again the story of his obedience in bringing gifts to the poor. My people, he says as well as a personal offering to the temple. To the temple! One wonders if in this part of his defense, he's looking right at his enemies and pleading with them to accept his message and repent before it's too late. And then several days later, he's at it again with a dirty, rotten Roman governor. Could you feel through Paul's words his invitation for Felix to repent? Righteousness and self-control matter, Felix. Judgment's coming. And Paul gets to Felix. Felix is afraid. I mean, Paul is relentless in his love of others here. He is, as he says, striving always to keep his conscience clear. See, Paul could say with a clear conscience one day before God that he gave it his all in trying to reach Ananias, these prosecuting Jews, and Felix. I gave it my all. My conscience is clear. And you might say, okay, but I don't anticipate being put on trial for my faith anytime soon. Fair enough. You may be right. But my friends, we are on trial for our faith every moment of every day unless we run from that courtroom of life. The world's watching The world's waiting. The world passes before us all the time, one person at a time. It comes into this door, those doors, into our church, Sundays and weekends. Are we straining for them? 
doing all we can to reach them, loving them, even at great personal risk, even at the risk of our own lives. Is our conscience clear there before God and man? You know, we can do church by tending only to our relationship with God. Or we can do church by tending to our relationship with God by feeding His sheep and loving others. Sign me up for the latter one, okay? And until or unless we do so relentlessly, may our conscience burn within us to be cleared. May we strive to always clear our conscience before God and man, and in doing so, finish well. I imagine the following story is one that repeats itself on the playgrounds of America daily during school. A little girl comes running in, a new girl to the school, comes running up to her teacher with sobs and tears running down her face. And the teacher says, Amy, what's wrong? And Amy, you know, hey, I try a playground these new girls, and I just want to say hi. And every time I try to do that, they, like, look at each other, and they've known each other for a long time, and I can tell they're close, and I feel like such an outsider, and I keep going, and I try, and I just want to have... And they look at me and they say, we don't know you. You know, we've got enough friends in our little group here. Amy... There's other groups in other places of the playground. Why don't you go and play with them? What's the experience of the new students in the playground of God here at West Bowles Community Church? You guys are awesome. Don't get me wrong. Feeling like I'm a little heavy right now. And I know it's going to kick off in three minutes. I'm finishing well, okay? You guys are awesome. I love you. But you got to know, and maybe some of you who are newer can remember when you first came here. In your awesomeness and closeness and love, that's intimidating to someone new, right? You ever been that little girl, Amy, on the playground trying to crack into it? This is intimidating. And I wonder how many people come in and bounce out because they sort of feel that we're comfortable in who we've been, you know. Relentless. Relentless in our pursuit of people striving to reach them. You really got to bend over backwards to check. We, we, we really do. To make sure that all who come feel welcome and loved and so learn the love of God through us. May we strive to clear our conscience before God and man, to love God and others, and in doing so, finish well. Just like Paul, just like Jesus. And would people who meet us at just like West Bowles Community Church? Oh, Lord, may it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us so much. Please put on our hearts the conviction, the desire, the conscience 
to share with those who have nothing so that they may know there is a God and salvation in your Son, Jesus' name alone. We love you. Father, we ask all of this in your precious Son's name who showed us the way of laying down His life for even His enemies. Help us as we too take up our cross daily and follow Him. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace and always let your conscience be your guide.